Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today I get to sit down with someone who has been my little internet friend for uh, years, uh, fellow animal care professional, Rachel Hale. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Hi, so happy to be here. I actually can't believe I haven't had you on before. I, you should be giving me into trouble for being like, Hazel, why have I not been on your podcast yet? <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. We're here now. We're here now. We are. And I'm so excited to sit down and chat and you can share all of your wonderful knowledge with my listeners. But um, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, could you fill them in? Sure. Uh, my name is Rachel Hale. I've worked in the exotic animal industry, care and training and stranding and rescue for well over a decade. Uh, my career started in marine rescue with stranding response. So that would be anything uh, that washes ashore on the shores of Florida, um, live or dead we would respond to. We got to do a lot of really cool rehab situations in in those uh, that era of my life. Then I moved on to working with marine mammals for a brief stint of time in care and training. Uh, found a very, very heavy love of great apes where I spent uh, quite some time with a couple of great ape troops. Moved on to cheetahs, ambassador animals, and um, now I actually help do behavior at a local sanctuary for unreleasable wildlife. So the Florida mammals that uh, aren't quite fit to return to nature, they'll stay with us. And we're working on some behavior programs there. Um, also dabbled in dog training. So I've, I've been I've been around many blocks. <laughs> Very well-rounded for sure. Um, and all of your jobs have involved animals to some degree. So where did your love of wildlife start? Uh Honestly, I don't remember a time where this hasn't been what I wanted to do. I would consider mm -hmm. myself really lucky in that I, I really don't have any cognizant memories where this wasn't, you know, my passion and everything I wanted to follow in life. Uh, I was born on the East coast of Florida and growing up, my parents tell me that they tried to take me to Disney World and I would cry in the parking lot and ask to be taken across the street to SeaWorld. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, I remember, you know, I just remember growing up with watching the orca and dolphin shows and watching the trainers interact with those animals and thinking to myself, I wanted to be able to do that one day. I want to somehow bridge that gap in communication and relationship building with an animal to be able to have the relationships that they do. And so uh, I, I really don't remember a time when that wasn't it. I, I remember a time when we moved to Indiana and I cried because I couldn't go see local manatees and I couldn't go to SeaWorld. So uh, seven-year-old Rachel tried to befriend the ducks in her backyard as the only quote-unquote marine animals <laughs> that were near. But um, but yeah, it's, it's always been my, been my lifeblood. Isn't it so funny? Like, I feel like so many of us have the same kind of story. Like, are we just are we just born that way? Like we just really love animals and that's what we want to do. I think, I think our parents are partly to blame as well. Yeah. My parents, uh, they were actually good friends growing up with, or when I was growing up, 
one of their sets of good friends was a couple that met at Miami Seaquarium as uh, one of them was a turtle biologist and one of them was a sea lion trainer. Wow. And so my parents hadn't been exposed to that animal industry before, thought it was mm. interesting. And um, that's why they started taking me to SeaWorld and whatnot, hearing their friend's story. And so I would like to think my parents had a little bit of role to play. They definitely helped push me in that direction from those oh, for sure. similar stories. Like, have you seen those memes going around the internet now? And it's like, why did we all want to be marine biologists in the 90s? Like, with all the notebooks and the stickers that were all, like, dolphin and rainbows. Have you seen that? The Lisa, I haven't seen the meme, but the, the, the Lisa Frank meme, or the Lisa Frank. I think uh, so, yeah. Like, the notebooks, like, I had them. Like, all the stickers. Like, I feel like marine biologist was the, the dream career every, all of us wanted. And some of us kind of made happen, which is kind of great. So, yeah. um you definitely had a focus in the early years if you wanted to work with marine life. Yep. Marine life was, um, what I initially wanted to do. I, uh, I was born on the coast and I, like I said, I had a brief time in Indiana, but I I've always felt at home on the coast. So I think that's what pulled me a lot to marine life. Um, it's what I got to see growing up. Um, SeaWorld was again, a big player in that. And, seeing you know the manatees and local canals and dolphins and whatnot and we had uh little river otters that I always loved watching so I think that that was what my biggest draw was to marine life versus mm -hmm. terrestrial was because of the proximity to it mm -hmm. and actually being able to experience it in my own backyard um but yeah then that definitely took a little bit of a turn when it came to great apes because they they stole my heart in many many unexpected ways but um I've always definitely had a had a big, big space in my heart for anything marine. So when did that shift happen? Like you were working with marine animals and then did the position with great apes come up? You just thought, hey, let's do it. Let's maybe see what this is. How did you make that decision to apply for that job? Yeah, so good question. I I was in my internship experience and I had been wanting to actually make my way to SeaWorld Orlando and so a position, seasonal, a seasonal position with great apes came up at, at Bush Gardens. And I said, hey, that would be a good way to get in the company um, and also have a fun stint working in other species. And why not? You know, they've always fascinated me. But like most people would probably say, great apes are somewhat intimidating. You know, they're the closest thing DNA wise to us. <laughs> and um, they're very, very strong. And so there was a little bit of that intimidation factor, but uh, I figured I'd have a lot to learn from them. So I ended up taking a six-month seasonal. Um, I think two months into that seasonal, I was hired full-time, and it was, it was just, I don't know, the first, the, the I almost didn't take that job because I actually almost ended up going to Orlando um, on a different position, but there was just something about them that was so captivating, and they're... I, I wanted to, I wanted to be in the troop. I wanted to be accepted by them because it's so <laughs> like any other animal, you know, like, you know, if you, it's it's a lot easier to build relationships with other species. I think um, they all have their own nuances and they all have their own uh, standards, as I like to say, but great apes were just something else because um, I don't know. They were just something else. I mean, they could eat their environment. They're all, they're, 
predominantly herbivorous, right? Especially gorillas. And so you have to be really, really, really good at relationship building. Otherwise they'll just go stare at you and eat grass. You know, it's not like another animal where you have a little bit of, I don't want to say leverage because that's not the right word, but um, I always say, you know, if your best friend walks in the room with a pizza, you're going to be twice as excited. It's, it works a little oh, bit differently. That. I really like that analogy, actually. You're still happy to see your best friend, but if your best friend is coming with pizza, you're really happy. Exactly, exactly. So what makes you say that it was harder to build relationships with great apes? They, so I'll forever say that, especially gorillas, but chimpanzees too, because I worked with both of them. Um, They know that they don't need you by Mm. any standard of the word and you know they have luckily the ones I was working with had their own social structures and managed care so they had you know that social component of their life um the way that the daily setup was was you know they got all of their daily diet regardless of interaction with us which is how it should be um and they also lived in environments that they could eat so it's kind of like us living in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory you know <laughs> theirs was a little bit of a healthier ch- factory but um being gorillas are herbivorous animals and chimpanzees are omnivorous but still a large diet comes from browse and foliage um you know you don't have the same drives of hunger again if you see your best friend you're going to be excited if they walk in with a pizza, you're going to be more excited. If you haven't eaten in five hours, you're going to be triples excited, right? And so kind of understanding how all that works, you don't have that barometer with the great apes. Um, on top of that, they read our language infinitely better than we do as humans. See, I um, find that so interesting because I feel like the analogy you made um, about them not needing you, that's very killer real as well like you new trainers come in they're like I don't care about you you are nothing to me don't even try it like that's the mentality like a killer whale will very happily just sit in a corner and not come to you even if you have five buckets of fish if they don't want to like they're they are very self-absorbed creatures they're like yeah (laughs) I'm the shit you're not and I would agree I would agree um they're like I know that you're here for me I'm not here for you type of deal like you know they they get it yeah so but, the, but the reading of your language I can imagine that's on a completely different level because I would say that killer whales and probably dolphins and sea lions to some extent are attuned to body language too mm-hmm. but I can imagine it's times 10 with gorillas and chimps yeah they um so the there was years into me working with them I read this book um, I read a couple of a couple of books, but there was this one study of this chimpanzee named Washu. Um, could tell you a little bit about her, then I'll circle back as to why that's so relevant in working with them. Um, but this chimp named Washu, she was part of a research project in California decades ago. They had taken her from her chimpanzee mother to see if they could chimps could learn sign language in the same way that humans could. So obviously something that, you know, the knowledge we gained from this and what she was able to give back to uh, chimpanzees and managed care is amazing. Obviously, we would never pull a chimpanzee from a human or a chimpanzee mother now, but they raised this chimp in a trailer in a backyard where any human she saw never spoke. They only used American Sign Language. 
So it would be the replicate, like it would replicate that environment where mm-hmm. if we had a human that was deaf or a human learning ASL, American Sign Language, um, that that's how they would learn and grow. And so this chimpanzee, you know, by the age of two or three, knew dozens and dozens of words and phrases and was wow. learning at a rate almost similar to humans, fully conversational. And this chimpanzee went on, there was a lot of people that were involved in raising her, training her and taking care of her throughout her whole life. And that's a whole nother uh, soapbox I could get on. But the amazing thing was this chimpanzee went on from a couple different labs and facilities, because once you're obviously raised by humans like that, it's, there's a lot of integration that has to take place properly for you to ever be with around other chimps or um, whatnot. Anyhow, years down the road, she ended up having, there was a baby chimp that needed a surrogate mom. Mm. And they said, Washu, let's, let's see if we can put Washu in there. Uh, they allowed Washu to be the surrogate mom, did a great job. And this was at a facility that they had stopped using sign language at. This baby learned every ounce of ASL that Washu knew completely through Washu teaching her something she had not used. And I don't quote me on the exact years, but I want to say it was like a decade since she had used sign language. She translated all of that to the baby. And then the baby was communicating that with keepers. So then they brought some of the original people that who worked with her shoe back and it was just, it was just flawless. Right. And so the book is called next of kin. If anyone wants to read it, hands down, anybody in the animal behavior field, I think it's a must read mm. because it really pushes our boundaries on what we believe animal animals can understand, learn and mm-hmm. comprehend. And so I, that got me down a big, big uh, rabbit hole of, you know, what is animal communication? How smart are they truly? Because we can find animals in the boxes that we have created ourselves in our limited scope of environment. But when we think about communication, you know, especially when you take in terms of great apes, we have that um, crutch of the spoken word, which other mm-hmm. animals don't. That doesn't mean that they can't understand it. Think of, you know, anyone who's had a dog, they're, you know, dogs can learn lots of cues, but they just don't have the vocal structure to replicate it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They actually did some studies on chimpanzees and the way that their larynx and pharynxes, it makes it actually incapable of them having that vocalized word that we do. So where we have this crutch of verbal communication, which a lot of times can be misconstrued, uh, you know, we all lie or we all say white lies. I don't want to say lie for sure, but you know, we all, we all have our own inflections on certain things. Body language doesn't lie. Facial expressions don't lie. Uh, scent communication doesn't lie. And so you have these highly intelligent great apes that can read scent communication on humans. They can read our body posturing, facial expressions, all of these things that we're not even aware that we're doing at a rate that's infinitely better than we can because that's what they rely on for communication, right? And so we always would joke when we work with the chimps that they could smell how we feel. And I believe it because you'd watch it, you know, <laughs> if we if we were nervous or anxious one day, no matter how chipper and excited we tried to be, they they were picking up on things that we didn't even know we were giving off because us as humans don't learn to, you know, we don't practice communicating in that realm. We practice in the, in the mm. verbal vocal realm. Um, but these great apes, they, they're, they're on whole different levels. So you, you really to achieve a true genuine relationship with them, you have to be genuine with them and with yourself. Um, 
but the better you are about doing that, the better you're going to be with any animal. Because again, we put them in these boxes of how we think they can perceive and communicate the world, but we don't know for sure. There's a lot of animals that I think can perceive and communicate us in ways that we're completely unaware of. And great apes definitely open your eyes to that. I would would also argue that every animal trainer or animal behaviorist is much more perceptive of those types of cues in other people and also very aware of what they're giving off not necessarily even just when they're in front of their animals but also around other people um I think definitely after working with predators I became and I think people kind of forget sometimes that the killer whales in human care are predators like you see the word predator and they're like (laughs) lion tiger like killer whale is a massive predator um you know so I think yeah I definitely became way more aware of like how I how just how you stand and I remember mm-hmm. my supervisor whenever new trainers would come in he would always say um that he was able to tell who would stay with killer reels and who wouldn't um based on how they stood in front of the animal their first session um yeah. because you can you can be nervous but still like have confidence in yourself and feel like yes I can be in front of this animal um when you first started with the primates how did you feel? Oh, absolutely nervous. The first time I remember stepping up to our largest silverback male gorilla at the time, I was literally shaking Hazel because I, I, you know, we worked through protected contact. So there was a mesh between us, but I remember thinking that this animal could, is, is so much stronger than I could ever even perceive. And so I remember I was walking up just little shaking and, um, absolutely nervous, but couple sessions in, I was it's like, no, I love this. I love this. I want to become better. So I'm not that mm-hmm. person that, you know, like your supervisor would have said, doesn't keep working with the orcas or the apes or whatever it may be. Um, but you definitely have to overcome a lot of things within yourself to not only gain that confidence, but I mean, really be grounded in that confidence and work around it. Um, I think relationship fun. comes into that too, as well. Like when you start to build a relationship with an animal like that you grow in confidence in yourself because of that relationship oh 100 percent. did um I don't know if you've ever talked about this but did I tell you about the time when I went to Africa and there was this male elephant a giant African elephant in must and I had you to- did but tell it again yeah there was so there was we were on a safari um we were with a guide who very, very great, great, knowledgeable guy, but I know he was uh, relatively new into guiding. And we had chosen to go on a night safari with him and they're super, super accommodating to us. There was great, great people. And so we're, we're driving through the bush at night and there was this little path, this winding path that connected a couple different like plains and waterways areas. And it was a pretty narrow path. So there's this rough thick thicket on either side of this vehicle which mind you it's an African safari it's open top you know just you hop in the little jeep buggy and you go and um it's you know 11 o'clock at night or whatever it was and we turn this corner and all of a sudden this smell hits you like a wall and for anyone that's ever smelled a male elephant in must you know exactly what I'm talking about because it's it's unique and um so the smell hits us and then all of a sudden we are you know, we drive, I don't even know how many feet further and we are surrounded by an elephant herd. 
So immediately the guide does the right thing, turns the car off and we just sit. And I mean, I have baby elephants five feet from me. I can feel them breathing on my face. The moms are right there. And, but you know, you know, they're all just calmly eating. They're grazing on whatever bush was out there, but you can smell this male. And so, you know, he's around. And so you start to hear some trumpeting and he's getting closer. And we were with the herd for, I don't know, time so relative. So what, 10, 15 minutes or something. And the guide was thinking, okay, let's let them be, you know, we're not bothering them. Um, he did a good job reading their behavior, but he was like, it's time to go. I don't want anything to happen. And I think in his mind, he knew the mail was coming because you mm. could just smell that wall <laughs> must get <getting> closer. <laughs> approaching. like like the dementors in harry potter like the ice is encroaching (laughs) literally that's that's a perfect example and so he turns the car on and the engine turning on in the lights agitated the male and all of a sudden this male the stench just instantly doubled we he comes in our line of vision now that we have these lights on and you can see the guy he's starting to shake And I've been in a lot of situations, both under, you know, managed care and in wild, in the wild where I've had to maintain my calm around predator, predatory animals. Cause like you were saying, Hazel, it's, you have to have a certain confidence when you're working with them because they will smell, they will sense, they will look at your fear and they will think, huh, that's a, that's a a chum right there. Mm -hmm. And, um, so you can see the guide starting to shake and I, this is one of this might be the only time ever actually that I've gotten really like queasy legged and started shaking. I'm like, oh my gosh, this elephant, he's literally doing the little paw thing with his, <laughs> with his like rearing up to come get us. He's approaching us. I'm like, oh my gosh, are we going to make it out of this? And so the guide tries to show this fake sense of confidence and making loud noises and, you know, trying to pull the, pull the vehicle out, which is the quote unquote textbook way to do it. He wasn't doing anything wrong. You know, if someone had to give him a steps, ABC to do, that's what he was doing. But the animal knew he was unconfident. The, that, that elephant was able to sense what, you know, however it was an elephant perception that that guide was not confident. He was in his uh, lady elephants and children's space and he, he didn't like it. And so he kept trying to turn the car on and off. And this elephant is like moving other elephants to get to us. I'm starting to get worried. Like we're in an open top car in the middle of the night. Nobody knows we're out here pretty much. Like this is, it was a friend of a friend safari that, you know, great, great company, great, great preserve. I'll, I can't say enough good things about them, but it's one of those things of like, if I don't return, who's going to know what time we were supposed to return. This isn't a scheduled tour that, you know, you're supposed to return at this time on the clock. So anyways, I tell the guy, I'm like, we, we have to train this elephant. He's like, what do you mean we have to train it? And I was like, we have to train it. And so I had to, like, we were, I was trying to talk to the guy, help him build some confidence and just having something other than that textbook ABC to work through, but also going off of all the principles of animal behavior we all work with all day in, day out, you know, anytime they do something that we like, give them something that they like. And so long story short, this elephant didn't like, um, when we would turn the car on and the revving mm-hmm. of the engine was making him upset. And so anytime that, you know, we had, we had to use that to our advantage. And when he would start to back off, you know, we'd keep the car off for longer. Mm. I think, you know, again, time is relative. I have no idea how long it took us to get out of there. It felt like five hours, but it was probably a solid 30 to 40 minutes of us working with this elephant to allow us to just back up. 
And so clearly we live to tell, tell the tale, but um, we were definitely at the mercy of that animal. And to the point that you were saying, you know, they, they read off your confidence, they read off your everything. Um, they but know. it's a really great way of describing how perceptive they are, because <laughs> I feel like so often when you talk about like positive reinforcement training um, in terms of this is how you get an animal to do what you want it to do most people think about oh you know they do something and give them a treat Mm -hmm. but it can work exactly like you said it can be something just as simple some something that's not as easily tangible as Mm -hmm. just okay we're just gonna we're just gonna turn the car off and that's what he likes so we're using negative reinforcement here like we're gonna take away that noise as soon as he stops charging us um but yeah I can that's that's pretty scary that's uh that's a moment you're not going to forget. <laughs> no, I will definitely never forget that. <laughs> so who was the first um, ape that you built a relationship with, do you think? Oh, that would have to be a gorilla named Sim Sim. He, uh, he's such a special boy. He was, um, actually, that's a perfect segue from the conversation we just had. He, um, silverback male, he, uh, I started working with him when he was in his late twenties through his early thirties. Um, and he, he was an ape that, you know, he was born in managed care. He knew that he controlled the surroundings, you know, cause he has all day to sit there and think, how am I going to control these humans, this environment, you know, that's <laughs> what we all do. Right. Um, and so he sitting at the it. corner hatching his plans. <laughs> like, mm, <laughs> I am not going to take the banana from them until they give me the peanut butter. <laughs> exactly. Well, and it's so funny because you know, like you'll see him. He'll like a banana. Uh, you know, he he was he was an older geriatric gorilla, so he had a few different medications he was on for arthritis and things like that. It was so funny because every morning and night he had a banana mixture of his medications that he got for free. Cause it was just, you know, half of a mush banana, not a big deal to an animal that eats 50, 60 pounds of food a day. Um, but there would be days he would just bucket. And you, once you got to know him, you would see, he just had that glimmer in his eye. Like, I'm just going to bucket and see what they do. I I'll eat the banana. It's not that he disliked the banana, but, um, Sim was one of my favorite animals to work with for a wide variety. I mean, I could talk about him for hours. He, um, he loved human interaction. And back when I had initially joined the team of grade eight people that I had been with, a lot of them had only learned under that. If I have a bucket and food, they're going to like me, but that's not it. That's not it for any animal, especially great apes and, you know, killer whales and all these big apex animals. Um, and so I learned really quickly that I'm like this, you know, this animal wants something more than just food on a spoon. Long story short, he was one of the most fun animals to work with because he just loved interaction of all sorts. He loved being a part of our world. So one of his favorite things to do is when we would take laundry out of the laundry machine, he would love to watch us fold it and sort it into piles. And he would come over and happy grumble and and pat his belly. And it was just watching (laughs) fold laundry, which we're like... (laughs) We don't even want to be doing this. Yeah, do you <laughs> want to do you want to do it for us? Like exactly. Who wants to fold laundry? But it was one of Sim's favorite things. And so we would try to find all different fun things to do with him. And um one of my me and one of my coworkers would love to play this game with him where we would let him choose a toy um to watch what it would do. And a lot of times we would bring in, you know, like child's bathtub toys where you if you wind mm-hmm. it up, it swims or 
um, makes different noises and things like that. So we would do a lot of different choice games with them because again, you know, the concept of choice is such a big thing in animal training, yeah. just giving them that choice and control over what they see, what they do. And so he loved playing like this choice toy game. But you know, the funny part about it, he liked watching what would happen. Just like he watched, he liked watch folding, uh, watching the laundry get folded. But we brought this game out to the public side. So when we would do keeper chats and presentations, we would let him, you know, let him choose and interact with the toys. And it turned into him interacting with the audience because he didn't care. He knew what the toy was going to do, right? I mean, you can only bring so many toys in front of a 30-year-old gorilla and expect him to be amazed. He's not a one-year-old toddler. You know? mm -hmm. Like I've seen this before. I know what it's going to do. He would pick the toys that got the biggest reaction from the audience. Yeah. So we would kind of like play around with the audience and do all these things. But I mean, that animal, you know, he was, he was oh, such a special soul. He's forever one of my favorite animals, but he, he would test you when you first started working with him, he would test you, he would try to intimidate you. And it wasn't out of an aggression, you know, so, so many times gorillas get this big King Kong aggressive persona, but it, he was laugh about it. Yeah, he was just, he had, you know, I mean, he's, he's in managed care. So we all have to realize that while their life doesn't have to, I don't want to say it's worse, but it's just different than what a gorilla would get in nature. But gorillas in nature, you know, a big part of learning how to be an adult male silverback is testing your bounds and seeing how macho and tough you are. So he's going to test his macho toughness on the new people. Ooh, he would test it. And then he would laugh pat his belly and roll on the ground and just be like oh ha 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 I got him because he's not you know it's just it's just all play um but yeah that was another thing I really loved about gorillas is they're so so playful they'll play pranks on you you can play pranks on them they're they, they're such goofy goofy animals and they get this big king kong I'm gonna tear down a city persona and it's of all the animals I've worked with they have such you know pound for pound immeasurable strength um, bite force, you know, muscle strength, and they're, they avoid conflict at all costs. They really do, you know, they push such a passive environment, even in their own social structures, they'll, they'll get tough when they need to. But at the end of the day, they really are one of just the most calmest. Uh, they're just so surreal to work with. Do you have any examples of you guys playing pranks on one another? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so my other favorite gorilla, Bolingo, who I always obviously post post yeah. about, he would he was really jumpy. So like Simpson, for example, it was a lot harder to sneak up on Simpson, but Bolingo was always just so zoned out. You know, he's <laughs> your typical teenage boy in his nothing box. He's just mentally cashed in a nothing box thinking of who knows what teenage boy things. And so you would just come up and jump on him and like, you know, and get him. And he would he would laugh and uh, do that um the gorillas would do that to us sometimes try to sneak up on you and just like bah and you know they laugh they would do it to each other um the kids especially they would always just play little jumpy pranks like that um one time I tried to we had we had these giant romaine lettuce boxes that we get every day because you know each adult gorilla males eat 50 60 pounds of food a day females 30 40 so you can just imagine how much romaine mm. boxes we got so one day I packed myself all up tight in a little romaine box and I had my friends push me over to Bolingo and I was going to jump out and surprise them. 
well, just to show how smart they are, he thought I was hurt. So he was mad at them. Oh. And then I found out it surprised him. And then he looked at me like, why would you play a prank like that on me? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, no, I'm, I'm a horrible friend, you know, that took the prank too far. But he was happy grumbling after that. We, um, oh, we would do things all the time. I'd get like giant cardboard cutouts. I remember I'd had one of Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, like a life of <laughs> Aragorn. And I'd peep it through the windows at him. And they would, it, we just, it was, it was fun. It was literally like office pranks 101 all day, every day. Um, now that's the show I would watch, like the office gorilla <laughs> edition. <laughs> oh my gosh. Who's going to fund that? So we need someone on here to crowdsource fund that. <laughs> So you said that gorillas are super goofy and enjoy the pranks. Did the chimps enjoy similar games? Oh, absolutely. So there was, um, they would play pranks on each other all the time. A lot of it was that similar, just, you know, jumping up and whatnot and spooking each other. But we had one chimp that whenever we would give them brows, which for anyone that hasn't worked with um, terrestrial animals, it's just that leafy vegetation that's edible. So you could cut it down from any tree, usually a stick and leaves. Uh, the technical term is brows. <laughs> but whenever we would give them brows, a lot of times they would hide the stick. We had one chimp that would hide the stick behind their body. And then when we'd walk by, they'd poke us and laugh really quick. So, you know, they, they would do all these funny things that are just, um, they're just, you know, having a good time. It's like us playing little pranks on our friends here and there, but they, they have individual personalities. Obviously, I think anyone listening to this podcast already knows that animals all have individual personalities, but they, you know, they have their own desire to play and manipulate their environment in a fun way. It's not always, you know, some type of deceptive manipulation. Mm. It's just, hey, I like this person. I want to see him. I want to see him jump or laugh or this yeah. or that. So they, I feel they, like, chimps my well I've only ever really interacted with chimps twice once when I was working at a safari park in Scotland mm -hmm. and no one was allowed to interact with those chimps they lived on chimp island um and everything was delivered to them via shoot um because I think they had aggressive <laughs> histories like they were good by themselves they used to like fling their shit at the tourists that would like go around in the boat um that was like their that was their main pastime was like let's see they good target practice they had pretty good aim um yeah. and then laurel park the chimps there lived like weirdly right beside human resources like the back end of the enclosure was around the corner from hr so whenever you needed to like file paperwork or <laughs> go and like apply for vacation you would have to pass the chimps and they would wait, like they would watch you come down the hill because there was like loads of trees and stuff in their exhibit on the, the side facing the hill. So you couldn't see them, but they could definitely see you. And then you would come around the corner and they would like launch, like bang on the glass or like launch themselves at you or like spit at you and like just anything to get a reaction. And it was always, it must've been quite funny for whoever worked at HR, like watching people come down and get like scared shitless by these chimps. <laughs> that's that's HR's way of saying we uh we want we we want to make sure that people really want to talk yeah. to us. Yeah. First, <laughs> all, first they really need to. <laughs> every other facility is like, how do you not have like more HR stuff? Is like chimps. We have chimps guarding <laughs> HR. <laughs> oh, the chimpies! They uh, there. Have you watched that new uh, Netflix documentary that came out? Chimp Chimp Empire or Chimp Haven? No. Um, I'm not sure if it's a, because I know sometimes Netflix does different things with mm. US Netflix and European Netflix, but anyone who 
has access to the programming. Um, Chimp Empire, I think is what it's called. It's one of the most beautifully done documentaries I've ever seen that has such an accurate representation of that, you know, chimpanzee po politics is what I'll call it, just the way that they <laughs> act, <laughs> um, their own social cues, which can sometimes be, you know, I mean, it definitely is something to be respected because they're very strong, very smart, and they definitely have a different way of interacting with each other and their environment than us humans in our civilization prefer. Um, but it also shows such a loving, kind, caring side to them too, because mm -hmm. they are some of the animals I've seen with just immaculate social bonding that, you know, just as, just as hard as they can hate on something or someone they can love harder. And it's, it's such a fascinating thing. Cause I remember when I first started working with chimps, everyone asked me if I was crazy. And it's funny. Cause I actually was more interested in the chimps initially than the gorillas. And then all these years later, gorillas are my all-time favorite animal, but I do love the chimps too, but they, uh, they're so goofy too. And they, just, I mean, they love on each other so hard and they respect each other so much. And um, they, you know, they have historically evolved in an environment where they need to be that tough mm. territorial animal, but there's a flip side of them that a lot of people don't see. Um, one of my favorite stories was about a chimpanzee named Sally and um we were training her for a behavior where she would soak her estral pad, which is just her rump essentially, um, in a warm bath of noble sand. So chimps do get in social disputes from time to time, obviously they're chimps. And so a lot of times for whatever reason, her estral pad would get scraped up. And so we wanted an easy way to soak it and just help keep it clean. So we would, we had trained her to sit in what we call the spa because it would <laughs> always have warm water in it. And I kid you not, I know this is an audio podcast, but I wish I could have a visual just for this because we would take her, you know, we'd keep her, we'd hold her in one room while we fill the bath with warm water because she'd just get so excited. She'd want to play in the warm water and then the warm water wouldn't get in the tub. It would just get everywhere. So we'd take her into one room, fill the bath with warm water and then bring her back. And whenever she saw that the bath, the warm bath was coming, her spa day, she would chirp. And so it's this excited, like hee -hee -hee, chimp noise. I, I can't. Mm -hmm produce it on cue but she would chirp and get all of excited and she'd put her hands in the air like twinkle toes hands in the air a little princess and get on her on her toes on her tiptoes and dance over to the spa day and Aww. just coo and be so happy and she she loved spa day that was sally's favorite and they would get so excited over you know things like that that just I don't want to say it humanizes them because I think that takes them away from being a chimp. And, you know, there's always that discussion of anthropomorph anthropomorphizing an animal, but it shows us once again that they do have a kind, loving nature to them and an individual, you know, set of desires and wishes and whatnot. And it makes us get better at putting aside what we consider their scary side or their mm. you know faults because they're not faults they're just chimps being chimps but it makes us take that um take a different approach to saying okay this animal's not just this scary shit throwing beast that wants mm. to make your day a living hell if you want to go to hr <laughs> i mean understandably <laughs> so i'm not ju judging that uh that analysis of them by any means but it, it kind of you know again working with them is just i forever say it, it's the best thing that happened for me personally 
um, working with great apes in general, because it makes you have such a higher level of empathy for every living mm-hmm. thing, every human, every chimp, every gorilla, every, every animal that you're going to ever encounter from there on out because it really makes you look at what your preconceived notions of those animals are what boxes we accidentally put animals in not only in terms of intelligence but uh, individuality and sentience as well and then make sure that we're you know seeing things as they are versus how we've been taught to see them how we how we may have perceived them because animals have their own their own world outside of our heads Mm -hmm. so yeah. What would you say some of the main differences are between chimps and gorillas? Mm, I mean, there's a lot of obviously, um, you know, physical differences like size, there's color differentiation, difference, differences. Um, but in terms of behavior and working with them, chimps, there's actually a lot. I would say chimps have a much more adhered to social structure because dominance is such a different thing in chimpanzee politics than it is in gorillas. So for example, if we're going to call all of our chimps to station or to come over, you know, to interact with us for a training session or feed, they are all constantly not only focusing on the trainer at hand, which is what a lot of animals do, but focusing on every other chimp in the room. And if you have dominant chimps that are getting an item that the, or I'm sorry, if you have subdominant chimps that are getting an item that the dominant chimps aren't, that dominant chimp will remember that. And then an hour later on the yard, go take it out on that other chimp. So That's you killer have, reels too. They do that yeah. too. Yeah. So, you know, you have to make sure that you're not setting those animals up to fail in their social mm-hmm. situation where gorillas, again, they're conflict avoidance. So if you know they're sitting right next to another gorilla and they're like oh i want that piece of food they may just grab it from them and move on but they're not going to sit and have that you know um what's the word i'm looking for like they're not going to hold a grudge essentially mm. like that situation where chimps chimps will they never forget <laughs> they're so you know aware of that um they'll go take that out on them gorillas again they're conflict avoidance a lot more mm. um so a lot of that just comes out in how they learn. Um, again, chimpanzees, they, they've got so much going on in their head at all times. It's kind of like chimpanzees are the humans that's brains never shut off. There's always something just rolling, rolling, mm. rolling, 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 rolling. And gorillas are able to just sit and relax a little bit more. They're like the meditative ones. <laughs> They'll sit and just relax and enjoy and then deal with things as they come where chimps are always just, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Um, so there, there's a lot of differences in, the, in them that way. Um, both groups that I got to work with, chimpanzees and gorillas, we did a lot of, or a handful of fission fusion with each of them, mm-hmm. which also helped teach a lot about, you know, their social dynamics and how to make us better trainers so we can serve them in terms of these social structures. And so, you know, again, gorillas are just, I'm trying to think of the best, this is a really good question that I've never really thought about verbalizing so I'm trying to make sure I say this in the right way (laughs) they they're they're much more let's resolve things as they come up and then once we you know once we resolve it it's not that they don't remember because they do remember and they do have relationships that are very complex just like any grade ape or primate but they're a lot easier to move on than chimps where chimps hold a grudge a lot more Mm. and they'll remember those things there's a lot more double deception that you're going to see in chimps you'll see it in gorillas but 
because of the way chimpanzee society is, you're going to see a lot more double deception with them, even amongst themselves. So, you know, if you're throwing a big forage out for everyone, there's one that's hiding things and pretending to be eating lower value foods. <laughs> the dominant doesn't take the good things away, but then, you know, they'll save one to give to the dominant just to make sure that they, the dominant thinks that they're, you know, um, doing right by them. And, you know, they have that hierarchy that's always changing, always moving, and everyone's always fighting for another spot. There are gorillas that will try to push themselves up on a hierarchy level, but it's in a very different way than chimps. So they're, they're wildly different animals. And I've, I've spent some time around orangs as well. I've never worked with them on it, you know, as a primary trainer, but they're a whole nother level too. The orangs I've always heard are like the engineers of the, of the great ape world. They're always finding a problem to solve, something to build, something to do. Um, I remember you said once you gave me an example of like if you give the same thing to a chimp a gorilla and an orangutan they will all use it in different ways I think you gave me the example of like a dress or something like I can't it was I've it's stuck in my brain ever since you told me it it feels like you said like the orangutan would see how you're using it and would like do it in the same way kind of thing yeah yeah absolutely like orangs they will wear clothing. And if you, you know, you, you put a sock on your foot and then give them that sock, they'll put it on their foot. A gorilla will probably smell it, look if there's food in it and throw it away. And a chimpanzee may try to play something with it, but you know, depending on the chimp, they'll just have such a different reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's this comic that I saw once that had, so there's five species of great ape, right? If you include humans, but we'll take humans out of it. So it has, gorillas, chimpanzees, orangs, and bonobos, and bonobos and chimps are very similar, um, or they look similar. Bonobos look like little chimps if people have never seen them before, because I know they're a little bit more infrequent in managed care. And so in the comic, it has the gorillas on one side posing and seeing who's the biggest, toughest, you know, it's like the bodybuilding competition. And so most of them are just very, very relaxed, but they like looking at themselves in the mirror. And then you have the bonobos on another corner that are just having, having sex. Having sex. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I don't know what PG-13 rating I need on this podcast. No, no, no. They're, they're having sex. That's <laughs> what bonobos sex. do. Mm -hmm. And then you have the orangs in a corner and they're building a rocket ship to the moon out of, you know, sticks. <laughs> and then you have the chimps that are fighting with each other for no reason. And that is a pretty accurate representation of what you're going to see across the great ape field. I think that's that's just wonderful. I love getting to know animals' psyche and what makes them tick. And mm -hmm. it's just such a privileged position to be in to be able to work with these types of species. Um, how did you feel? And we're gonna get we're gonna get deep for a minute um, about working with animals that were so intelligent, so sometimes humanistic in managed care. Were you ever conflicted? A hundred percent. I still am conflicted to this day, to be honest with you. Um, I think this is an important conversation that it's so easy for everyone to immediately take one side or another. And I think that really that middle ground is the only way we'll all succeed with this, um, you know, because it is, I'll, I'll be the first person to say, and I said it when we started the podcast, I'm into animals because my parents took me to SeaWorld as a child. And I saw orcas and killer, or killer whales and dolphins and all of these highly intelligent animals, which I'm going to group in the same, you know, mm -hmm. or the same grouping as great apes because they're all wildly intelligent and social and have a 
very, very complex set of needs um, that I would have never seen. And, you know, I'm sure everyone, obviously you included, but everyone listening to this podcast knows that, you know, killer whales used to be hunted because they were, no one understood what they were. They were a shark. And, you know, I've recently gotten into shark diving. So I can even, you know, take this down from sharks and say, you know, they're all, they're all individual, they're species dependent on their behavior. And, you know, we can even go into this for animals that are still hated to this day for just existing and doing what they do. And so zoo, zoological institutions enable us to see these animals in a different light, build these relationships with them. However, it's very easy for us to either a be understaffed due to the way that the um or, uh, organization and you know field runs as a whole and not give proper care to the animals it's really easy for egos to run wild where you know just because we think that we're doing the best by the animal we're just because our intentions are good we don't realize the impact that our intentions have and intent doesn't always equal impact um and, you know, a lot of times we don't want to admit that better things could happen because those better things are out of our control as trainers. Mm -hmm. and, and so can animals that are intelligent, like great apes live fulfilling proper lives in zoological care? Yes. Does that always happen? No, not at all. And I've seen over the years in um, multiple facilities where animals, you know, staff comes and goes and um, management comes and goes, protocols come and go, that to us, it's just us either hitting a quota or us making the most of the few staff or little money that we have. But we all have the choice to leave and those animals don't. And a lot of times those decisions that we make is the difference between a good and a poor life for that animal. And mm -hmm. I do I, I don't think that every organization does right by the animals, to be completely honest with you. Um, can they? Yeah. Should they? Yeah. Is it blind? You know, I don't want to just say, oh, yeah, these animals belong in care because we're doing our best because there are a lot of good people, a lot of good facilities and a lot of mm -hmm. very established troops and groups and pods of these animals that do thrive. But I don't think that happens all the time now. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And I think the general public have a tendency to put all of that pressure on trainers or on keepers and hold them very accountable and forget to hold accountable the people who are actually controlling the budget and uh, mm -hmm. those big decisions that can actually make a difference. And not all zoos are created equal. So mm -hmm. yeah, if you if someone visits a zoo and you're like, oh, I don't really... I don't think this space is big enough. I don't see them having a lot of enrichment. I see them displaying a lot of stereotypes. That doesn't mean it's going to be the same in every zoo. Um, mm -hmm. Are we working towards bringing up the standards of welfare? Absolutely. You know, welfare is a massive discussion in the industry right now, as it should be. And talking about going back to the beginning of this podcast, giving your animals choice, giving them agency over their own environment and their own day is so important. And um yeah, my hope for the future is that we can make massive improvements and keep going the way we have been going for the last half a century of having these animals in human care. Um, it shouldn't just stop because we think, yeah, this is good enough. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, the best thing that all of us can do is pave the way for those conversations to open because, um, even if something was good or what we thought the best it was five years ago, 
well, five years in the future, everything's changed. So let's mm -hmm. reevaluate it. And so frequently, um, you know, after being in this field and working at multiple facilities and seeing a lot of things, there's so many times that it's like, oh, well, that's always how it's been. They're fine. Um, our needs change, you know, my needs on a day-to-day -day basis are so different from what they were five years ago. So who's to say that the animal's needs don't change as well, mm -hmm. um, whether that's, you know, age-related, and this isn't just veterinary care, it's behavioral care too, um, enrichment care, environmental care, all of these things. And I think so frequently everyone wants to put, because they think that they're doing their best, they think it can't be better. And I think that that's, you know, unfair and doesn't do the animals the justice that they deserve mm -hmm. because again, intent doesn't equal impact. And that's not a bad thing. You know, I've, there's been many things I've done that I was like, oh, this is, you know, it's, it's even as simple as, oh, I built this new enrichment. The animals are going to love it because I'm so excited about it. And they sniff it and move on and never touch it again. <laughs> and it, it's, you know, that just, it goes to show that just because we think we're doing right, if we're not consistently taking that back step approach and removing us from the equation to make sure that the animals are responding well to that change, you know, mm -hmm. how, how, how can we do best by that? Um, yeah. And like you said, I think a lot of it comes from management. A lot of it comes from finances as much as we hate to discuss that because we don't want to just tie animals to a financial qualifier. But at the end of the day too, there's, there's a lot in, that comes to that. And a lot of that is staffing too. I know that that's a hot topic across zoos and aquariums right now is do they have appropriate staff and um, not only in numbers, but in terms of experience, I know that's a big thing that's being discussed is because a lot of senior staff have been leaving because they weren't treated the way that they should, or they didn't like the things that were happening or you know, a whole myriad of reasons. And so, okay, you can say you replaced five years and 50 years of experience, or I'm sorry, five people with 50 years of experience with five people with five years of experience. And it's not the same. The animals are mm -hmm. going to be affected by that. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of avenues we could go down with that, as as you know. Yeah, there's a lot of areas of improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely there's some institutions that are doing it far better than others um and I think yeah if we can finally take our egos out of it and maybe act maybe act a little bit more like gorillas maybe <laughs> maybe take a leaf out of a gorilla's book and go hey guys I like that you have the lettuce that I want so I'm gonna take some of it and then we're gonna move on and we're <laughs> all gonna be better I think if I if I could vote a gorilla into all world leadership positions, I would do it in a heartbeat. I'll just say that. <laughs> they have a pretty good governance structure. So I am fully behind. Let's be more like gorillas. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat today. Um I can't I'm so sorry for not having you on sooner. Uh bad friend award. But yeah, it's been great. It's been great to chat with you. And you, you have so much information about great apes that I'm sure my listeners have loved. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's so, so good to catch up. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will catch you all next week.